you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse number 3. We already did verses 1 and 2. Today, we are going to encounter our first blessing in this epistle. Remember, we talked about the riches of Ephesians last week. It is a book about riches and blessing. And what a blessing we have before us today and what a text we have before us today. So let's start first by reading our text, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That's as far as we can go today. First of all, you need to understand that this is a call to worship by the Apostle Paul. In fact, you can tell that Paul can barely contain his praise as he seemingly barely takes a breath from verses 3 through 14. And really in the Greek, it's all one long sentence. And it's all rooted in that which is most preeminently true about God. And that is namely his sovereignty. He is calling those that he referred to back in verse 2. Remember verse 2. We saw this. He is calling those that he referred to in verse 2 as the saints and faithful to join him in this praise even before he gives them all the blessings that he is fixing to reveal in this book of Ephesians. And he starts out by saying, hey, let's bless the one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let's start by doing that. And he is pointing us to the highest form of God's blessing. And that is spiritual blessing rather than temporal earthly blessing. Now, the temporal earthly blessings are all fantastic. There's no question about that. And we thank God for that. But they do not compare to the spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. These are 
eternal blessings, as we learned this morning in Sunday school, that belong only to those who are the saints and faithful from verse 2. And the very first of these blessings in this epistle is the blessing of being chosen and predestined by God, just as the text clearly says. And just that sentence should let you know that all that lunch may have to be microwaved today. Now, there are many who would like to just pretend that these words are not here. But we have to deal with them because they are here. This is the deep end of the swimming pool, folks. And as has been said by theologians of the past, the subject of predestination is to be approached with fear and trembling and only in the context of faith. And that is how we are going to deal with this very deep subject today. And as you know, I though I am firmly convinced in my position on this subject and confessionally so with the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith being our confession of faith, Charles Haddon Spurgeon's confession of faith, the prince of preachers, I think we're in pretty good company with him, I still realize at the same time that the depth and the importance of handling this subject is immense. Therefore, it must be handled rightly, which means it must be handled biblically, as I aim to show you today, and with great care. So, you're going to get a lot of Bible today. And I want to start by just giving you the clear, plain, meaning, and reading of the words that we have before us. Look there in verse 4. And you see the word chose. And then in verse 5, you see the word predestined. And then you look over in verse 11, and you see the word again, predestined. Now, as you know, as everyone knows, those words have meaning. And they are not hard to understand. But as Dr. Lawson likes to say, for some, for everyone, they're not hard to understand. For some, they're just hard to swallow. And it's absolutely inescapable in this text that it's clear who it is that's doing the choosing and the predestinating in this passage, and it is not us. Plain reading. And in the context of our passage today, which starts in verse 3, this is the first and the primary of all heavenly Blessing of all spiritual 
blessing, as he said previously, because this is where the salvation of every believer begins. The doctrine of God's sovereign election, his choosing, his predestination is what determines not only the beginning, but the ending. This is blessing number one in Ephesians. And it's tied to the most essential characteristic of God. And that is, he is in control. That is what it means to be God. That he is in charge of everything that happens. Let me tell you something. If you just get that down in your bloodstream, this will all be much easier for you to deal with. And let me give it to you straight. As Luther said, neither horned nor toothed. Mankind was plunged into a terrible state of being born spiritually Dead, spiritually D-O-A, dead on arrival after the fall in the garden. That is the way we are all born into this world. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. In that state, Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 says, There is none who seeks for God. None means none. Now, many people seek after the benefits they can get for God. Many people seek after joy and peace and purpose and happiness. But none seeks naturally for the God of the Bible. But before the foundation of this world, out of this huge mass of God-hating, rebellious humanity that would ever be born into human history, God chose to call to himself a people out of that mass of sinners who make up the redeemed, who make up the church. God chose not Man chose before the world began all who would be a part of his redeemed humanity. He chose to adopt them into his family. He chose to forgive them. He chose to bring them through redemption in the blood of Jesus to a full Heavenly inheritance. It's all his doing. And that's why when it comes time to pass out the glory for it all in heaven, in eternity future, he will get every single ounce of salvation glory. There will not be one person in all of heaven who will receive any glory or credit from that tunnel of time God supposedly looked down and supposedly saw people choosing him before he chose them, which is ridiculous on his face if you even think about that. Remember in our study of John, 
how very clearly Jesus stated to Nicodemus when it comes to being born again, regenerate. Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom, much less enter into it, unless you have been born again. And it's not up to you to make that happen. It's up to God because the wind blows where it wills, just like the Spirit of God. Man then responds to that wind of the Holy Spirit, regenerating that dead spirit to life with repentance and faith. And even repentance and faith are gifts that God grants. Now, I want you to zero back in on that word chose. Look at verse four. I want you to understand this very clearly. In the Greek, that word chose has a very specific meaning. It means that God chose for himself, listen to this definition, unaided, uninfluenced by any external reality. That is what the original word means in the Greek unaided, uninfluenced by any external reality. So just the meaning of that one word destroys the tunnel of time theory that God looked down the tunnel of time, saw who would choose him, and then on the basis of seeing them choose, he chose them. No. Unaided, uninfluenced by any external reality, including that one. Now how about let's let Jesus himself Let's let him in on the deal. Speaking very straightforwardly and very directly in that famous passage of the sheep and the goats at the end of time. Matthew 25, 34. You remember, sheep are on the right, the goats are on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come you, who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you when? From the foundation of the world. Over in Revelation 13, it's talking about all on the earth who are worshiping the Antichrist. And in verse 8, it says, all who dwell on earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. So it's saying in the negative there, if your name has not been written in the book of life, but when was the book written? From the foundation of the world is so very clear that those who are the chosen and the predestined from our text have their names written in the book of life before time began. You see the same thing in Revelation 17, 8. There it's talking about the beast. And in that verse, you see those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And then the end of Revelation in Revelation 20, in the passage about the great white throne judgment, it states very clearly in verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so the previous two verses told us when the names were written, right? Amen. So when the preacher has an altar call, 
and somebody prays the prayer that's not found anywhere in Scripture, and he turns around and, and he quotes to him, there's a new name written down in glory. You know what? I want to jump up and say, no! Read your Bible! Amen. There are not new names being written down as people are being saved. Go back and read your Bible and don't do that again. Divine election and predestination are the first of all spiritual blessings and that's why Paul starts with these realities in this epistle. Do you remember John 1, 12 and 13? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Watch this. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Very clear. If you have been born again here today, it wasn't your will, it was God's will that made it occur. He initiated the election, the drawing, the regenerating that led to you exercising faith in Him. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Well, Brother Philip, that's just the apostles he's talking about. Really? Do you really come to that conclusion after reading the rest of the New Testament? That he's only talking about the apostles? In Acts 13, 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. How could you possibly come up with any answer to who does the appointing in that verse but God? In 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, it says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. How much clearer could it be? In Deuteronomy 7, God calls Israel my elect. Did God choose any of the other nations around Israel to bring his truth to? Did he choose the Canaanites who were throwing their babies in the fire? Did he choose the Egyptians? Did he choose the Assyrians? Did he choose the Babylonians? No. He's a choosing God because he's in charge and he does what he wants. In 1 Timothy 5, God says angels are elect, the good angels. In 1 Peter 2, the Bible says Christ is elect. In Acts 9, it says Paul is elect. So when we start with the first of all spiritual blessings, we have to understand that the foundation of all understanding of how God does his saving work starts and begins with the doctrine of divine sovereign election before the foundation of the world. Amen. Thank you, Lord. In 1 Peter 1, one and two, Peter's giving his greeting to the people. They're getting his letter. Look at the end of verse one going into verse two. How does he describe them? Who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, 
Here's another word. We're going to zero in on in the Greek. It's unmistakable in its understanding. You have to understand exactly what that word foreknowledge means in the Greek. And I'm going to quote straight out of the John MacArthur Study Bible. This is so important for you to understand. Listen at this quote. This word does not refer to an awareness of what is going to happen. It's not just prior knowledge beforehand of something that's going to happen, but it clearly means a predetermined relationship in the knowledge of the Lord. God brought about the salvation relationship into existence by decreeing it into existence ahead of time. Christians are foreknown for salvation in the same way Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world to be a sacrifice for sins. Foreknowledge means that God planned before, not that he observed before, end quote. That's as clear as crystal, a definition of that word in the Greek. And that's the way the word, what it means in all the other places in Scripture. Let me tell you, it's the meaning of the words in the Bible that convinced me of this understanding of the doctrine of election that I have and that our church confesses. Peter tells us our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us as we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Christian, you you were chosen for glory. You were chosen for justification and sanctification and glorification. And the reason for God's choosing is because God is God. Go down to Ephesians 1.11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance. Same as Peter. Here we go. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Steve showed us this morning out of Romans 8.28. All things is all things. Everything that happens, happens within the framework of God's will. This reality is all over the Bible, people. Now go back to Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him, again, before, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. We were chosen to finally and fully and ultimately and permanently forever be actually holy and blameless before God one day in heaven. Now, do you actually think that in your natural condition, spiritually dead on arrival, that you would ever choose the path that leads you to being holy and blameless before God? You never would. He has to choose us. Or we would never choose him. 
That's the how and the why of the most comforting verse in all the Bible. We studied it this morning in Sunday school, but we're going to read it again. Romans 8, 28. We're going to keep reading it till we die. And we know that God causes all things. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But what does Paul say immediately, immediately after that amazing verse in verse 29, for those whom he what? For new. Remember, not just looked ahead and knew what was going to happen, but predetermined to have an intimate relationship is what that word means. Those whom he foreknew, watch out, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Once you see it in scripture, you can't unsee it in scripture. We are not predestined just to be saved and hope that we can hold on to the end because I'm toast if that's how it works. I can tell you that for sure. No, we were predestined to be conformed to Christ-likeness in reality forever, in eternity future. That is the, the prize of the upward call when we get to heaven. And then, and then, of course, Paul keeps going. We get that amazing, unbroken chain of redemption, we call it, in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Nobody ever falls through the cracks in that verse. Nobody. If he predestined you, he calls you, he justifies you, he glorifies you. And Paul is so certain of it, he he writes it all in the past tense as if it's already a done deal, even while we're still living here on the earth. Now, what was his motive? Hmm? Well, go back to the end of verse 4. The next sentence starts in a weird place at the end of verse 4 and then going into verse 5. Look at it. End of verse 4, in love. He predestined us. That's God's agape, sacrificial love. Look over in chapter 2, verse 4 here in Ephesians. Paul says, oh, two of the best words in the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Look at that next phrase. Made us. Who made us alive? He made us. Made us alive together with Christ by grace, unmerited favor, you have been saved. The motive is he loved us. He loved us before we existed. In time, he loved us when we hated him. In time, he loved us when we were running from him and rebelling against him. How can he do that? How can God choose to set his love on those who have done absolutely nothing to deserve it, who in fact have done nothing but deserved his wrath? Well, that's the very essence of grace. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If y'all don't know the word propitiation by now, what it means, I'm not even going to tell you. You better go home and figure it out and come back and tell me. I just learned it. The only way we love him is because he first loved us. Starting in eternity past. Why? Hmm? We'll go back to verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Here it is. According to the kind intention of his will. That's all I got. <laughs> That's the answer. Look again at verse 11. Having be, been predestined according to his purpose, again, who works all things after the counsel of his will. That is what it means to be God. And we aren't just subjects in his kingdom, folks. If you believe, you have been adopted into his family with all the rights of being his adopted child and even joint heirs with Jesus Christ himself. Now look again at verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons to himself. Adoption. Man, look, I could go way into the doctrine of adoption here. Now, y'all know, usually when preachers say, I could talk on this for a long time, they really just they don't have much to say. They're just saying that. But you know, I'm really meaning it. I really, I could go on about a doctrine of adoption for another two hours right here before I ever get to what's next. But we got to press on because we got to eat. We see this, the goal, in the very next verse. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory. His grace. Then look at the end of verse 7. According to the riches of His grace. Look at the end of verse 14. To the praise of His glory. God does everything for His eternal glory. And specifically for us, for the glory of His grace that He bestowed unmerited favor on the undeserving like us that we don't deserve, heightened by the reality that we deserve the exact opposite, his wrath. A little further down in this first chapter, Paul's praying a prayer that I pray for all of us, especially as we go through the book of Ephesians. Look with me there in verse 17 and 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of His glory, of His inheritance in the saints. Man, if we would just grasp something of this incredible reality of God's sovereign purpose in salvation. Spurgeon said this, 
He who believes he is the elect of God, will he fear at all the world that stands against him? If earth be all in arms, he dwells in perfect peace, for he is in the secret place of the tabernacle of the Most High, in the great protection of the Almighty. I am God, says he. Are you worried about this country going down the drain right now as it is? Let me tell you something. The psalmist says God is our refuge. You can be concerned about what you see. But the Bible says God is our strong tower. Because God has chosen us from before the foundation of the world according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. We have nothing to fear. Now, I hate to report this to you, but I have to. In spite of all of this, this doctrine is the most hated doctrine by people who do not understand it. I wrestled with this doctrine for four years before I could finally wrestle no more with the meaning of the words. For those who don't understand this doctrine, it offends them. In fact, The majority report in evangelicalism today in our nation has the opinion that what I am preaching to you, here's the opinion, that is not fair. Okay? And what I want to tell you, first of all, is you don't want fair from God. Okay? First, let's get that straight. But they think that this seems to intrude upon human freedom And their understanding of free will. But you simply have to deal with the reality. That you cannot measure God. By your standards. I read it this morning. His ways are not our ways. Right? Psalm 115. Verse number 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he Pleases. Think about that. Just think about that. Psalm 135 verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases. He does in heaven and in earth and the seas and all deeps. Listen to Daniel 435. Here comes some flyover verse for some preachers right here. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. That won't go over well in the seeker friendly church. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? If he wants to choose, you can't say to him, what have you done? You better not. Hmm? Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 15 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is to this day. He's talking about Israel. Let me ask you, based on the last few verses I quoted, is that unjust that he did that? Hmm? That God chose some and not others out of all who deserve his wrath. Cannot God do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants? Then why can't we just let God be God? When we read this Bible. 
Psalm 50, verse 21. He says this, These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. R.C. Sproul said the biggest problem we have today is people don't know who God is. They got a God that they've made up in their minds of their own imagination. He is not the God of the Bible. God distributes divine justice because he is holy. Listen to this definition from John MacArthur. Divine justice is the essential attribute of God whereby he infinitely and perfectly just in himself and of himself and for and from and by himself and none other loves righteousness and defines what righteousness is. He wills it, therefore it is just. He wills it, therefore it is righteous. The Puritan William Perkins said this. We must not think that God does a thing because it is good or right, but rather is the thing good and right because God wills it and he does it. Stephen Charnock says this, the great controversy between man and God is this, shall God be God, his will or man's? If anyone's will is superior to God's will, frustrating God's will, God could not be God. That is atheism or idolatry, yet it is popular to so dethrone God. And so sad we've done that in so many of the churches of our nation. In spite of these massive truths, I'm here to report to you because I want you to understand that, that we have evangelical leaders and pastors all across our land who hate the doctrine of unconditional election. And let me give you a couple of direct quotes just to give you the flavor of what's out there in the church today. Here's one. To suggest that the merciful, long-suffering, gracious, and loving God of the Bible would invent a dreadful doctrine like election would have us believe it an act of grace to select only certain people for for heaven and by exclusion others for hell comes perilously close to blasphemy. That's well-known evangelical leader. Here's another. The flawed philosophical theology of predestination is an attempt to eliminate man's capacity to exercise free will, which reduces God's sovereign love to an act of a mere dictator. Another said divine sovereignty makes our heavenly father look like the worst of despots. The president of a Major Christian University said, such is Calvinism, sovereignty, the most unreasonable, incongruous, self-contradictory, man-belittling. Oh, the rich irony of that little phrase. Man-belittling and God-dishonoring scheme of theology that ever appeared in Christian thought. No one can accept its contradictory, mutually exclusive Propositions without intellectual self-debasement. It holds up a self-centered, heartless, remorseless tyrant for God and bids us to worship him. Another said five-point Calvinism makes God a monster who eternally tortures children. Okay? So needless to say, there's a great divide in our land and in the church as to how we understand this great doctrine. All of them are content to let God 
be the sovereign creator of everything. They're content to let him be sovereign over everything except this one little area, salvation. But whether you like it or not, to be God is to be God over everything. Especially the salvation of hell-deserving sinners. Especially that. Salvation is not a matter of fairness, folks. It's a matter of mercy and grace for the infinitely undeserving. Here's another pastor. To say that God sovereignly chooses who will be saved is the most twisted thing I've ever read and makes God a monster. Another says this makes God a diabolical monster and reduces man who is created in the image of God a mere robot. A well-known writer said divine sovereignty misrepresentation of God has called many to turn away from the God of the Bible as a monster. These men who have been entrusted with doing the same thing that I'm doing here today, the highest calling in all of the world, are calling God a monster because he's God. John MacArthur says, man is the monster, not God. No sinner is capable of choosing God, choosing Christ, choosing life, choosing salvation. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, dead and buried and blind and double blind and triple blind. Salvation is a work of God alone. And over and over and over and over again, the scripture says, God chooses whom he will save, end quote. As I've told you before, it's my opinion. I think that the biggest reason for people to be so against this view, rather rabidly like this guy, these guys I've read to you are just simple disagreement is this. They are trying to interpret this doctrine and all of these verses with their human reasoning rather than just interpreting the very plain meaning of the words in Scripture. Let me tell you something. If you try to figure out how God is sovereign in choosing people for salvation and then at the same time leaves others to themselves and they always go the same way and holds them accountable for their unbelief with eternal punishment, if you try to understand all of that together with your human reasoning, I'm just going to help you out. You will never get there. So don't waste your time. There's only one way sovereignty and responsibility go together, side by side in the Bible, and we don't mess with that. Spurgeon said they are like two parallel tracks running side by side simultaneously, and they don't come together until heaven. And isn't it interesting that those who hold to the view of the men that I just quoted when they pray for somebody's salvation, what do they pray? Oh, God, please save them. Does anybody ever say, Lord, I want you to save them, but I sure don't want you to tamper one bet with their free will and their personal freedom. Please don't do that. Have you ever in your life heard anybody pray like that for somebody to be saved? And after all the verses that we have looked at so far, let me just ask you, do they seem to reflect a God who was sitting up there before the foundation of the world 
and he was wringing his hands and he was looking down that old tunnel of time and he was thinking, I've done all I can do for them. I'm sending my son for them. I sure hope that some of them will believe because it's all up to their completely spiritually dead souls to believe and I'm not going to tamper with their freedom. Do you really think that that's the way it is when you read these verses? Well, that's what those would have us to believe that believe in that view. I just don't see that in the Bible. In the final analysis, after all is said and done, as to who winds up in heaven for eternity, I see it as God is the one who is responsible who winds up in heaven for all eternity because it's his kingdom and it's his decision over and over and over again. I read in this Bible, God has chosen, God has chosen, so that no man may boast before God. Amen. That's that's Paul's whole point about boasting. There's no place to boast because it's all a work of God. If you choose your salvation, how does that end human boasting? R.C. used to ask the question, why... Did you choose to believe in Christ and your next door neighbor still doesn't believe in Christ? Why is that? Are you smarter than your neighbor? Are you more spiritual than your neighbor? No Christian would say yes to those questions. If they did, they'd be boasting. Would they not? Later in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know it well, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that what? No one may boast. Now, I cannot leave this doctrine without pulling out on you the Ruger Red Hawk double action 44 Magnum Revolver of the doctrine of election. Tone her on over to Romans 9 and let's just get her done. And we're going to start reading in verse 14, considering this doctrine. Let's read together. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? 
The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also among the Gentiles. I mean, I just could have came here and read that today and we could have ate. I mean, if you're just honest. Okay, and what Paul is saying, if if what Paul is saying is that God looks down the tunnel of time and he chooses people for salvation based on who he sees would choose him, then I have to ask the question, why in the world, if that's true, would he bring up the issue of injustice? Why would he bring that up? If ultimately, in that view, it's a matter of human choice, because no matter how you get around it, God is basing his choice on your choice, God's just reacting to your choice, then there's really no reason to talk about injustice on God's part, is there? There's no need to object to that. When Paul talks about how he sovereignly worked in Pharaoh's life, really just letting that dude just be himself and just removing the restraints is all God did. He didn't actively cause any fresh evil inside of Pharaoh. Why would Paul say in verse 19, look at verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Those questions go for Pharaoh and for everybody who dies in unbelief. Why would Paul ask this? If the tunnel of time position is right, because clearly he is saying, how can you find fault with any unbelievers? Because who resists your will if you're sovereign over whether they believe or they don't? And as you know well, we already read it. He only gives one answer to that question that he just asked. And let's read it again. Verse 20, on the contrary. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? So it's clear. You can follow your own human reasoning with this if you want to. Or you can follow the meaning of the words here in God's book. I report, you decide. I'm really clear about the reality that what we see here in Ephesians 1 is God master planning every single person into the church who is to be in the church before the world began. I'm very clear about that. And it's his right and it's his prerogative to do with his creation whatever he wants to because he's God. To understand this biblically, you just have to be content to let God be God. And grasp the reality that there are just some things that he does not allow you to fully understand with your human reasoning. Example, the Trinity. Do you understand with your human reasoning how God can be one God and three persons at the same time? 
Do you understand how Jesus can be 100% God and 100% man at the same time? No, you don't. That's where faith comes into play. Faith in the meaning of the words of the book. Faith that the word of God is what it claims to be. The word of the living God. And when it comes to this issue of election, time tunnel gymnastics are not necessary. Just read the book. Well, Brother Philip, what about free will? Well, I asked the question back, what about it? That's a phrase you will find nowhere in the whole Bible. Free will, not found in the Bible. Now, man has a will, and he does have the freedom to make all kind of choices. I want to pick up my Bible right now. I just chose to do that. I freely chose to do that. I did, of course. God ordained it before the foundation of the world. That's the other side. But when it comes to choosing Christ, man's will is not free. As Luther said, it's in bondage. As Jesus said, it's a slave to sin. And man is a sinner by nature, and guess what? He can only choose according to his nature. And according to his nature, he will never choose Christ unless God invades his life and intervenes and makes him willing to believe. God doesn't do that. He never will. But Brother Philip, do you believe that man has a choice? Yep. I sure do. Do you believe anybody can come to Christ who wants to come to Christ? Yes, I do. Anybody who wants to. Pay attention. But I also believe the Bible teaches the absolute sovereignty of God in election. And I believe Jesus when he said, whosoever will, let him come to me. I believe that. But Brother Phil, them things are opposite. Yeah. Yeah, I know they are. But I'm very content to just let God be God and realize that the only way those two things can ever be resolved is in the mind of God. I'm content with that. So, so Brother Philip, why do we evangelize people? If the only people who are going to come are God's elect, well, why don't we just let it happen and everybody just comes on? Well, that's simple. We don't know who the elect are, for one thing. Only God does. And then there's that other little matter, as R.C. says, that God did just happen to command us to go out and preach the gospel to every creature, right? That's the means that God has ordained to call his people in the giving of his gospel. And when they come and they stay to the end, guess what? They were chosen and predestined from the foundation of the world. Election rightly understood, folks, is massively pride crushing. Because it lets you know it's all grace, buddy. Every bit of it you owe to God. It's God exalting. He gets all the glory. And it also means unbelievably that we are all headed for glory, church. And it was all determined by God before the world began. And guess what? He became a man to make it so. And as we celebrate and proclaim that in the Lord's Supper right now, I want you to think about that. He himself came and and took upon himself that which we deserve, the wrath of the Father to himself in our place as our substitute.